0: Welcome to the Transformations Podcast. Here, guests and I will share our transformative experiences and we'll explore how to find excellence in life. Hi, Steve James. Thank you so much for coming on to the Transformations Podcast this morning. Thank you, Mark. I'm pleased to be here. I've been excited to talk to you for quite a while because I've become a big fan of the Guru Viking Podcast, which for those who don't know, is your podcast. And I'll put a link for it in the show notes. And um, it's a quite interesting podcast because you cover so much ground um, from magic to kundalini to enlightened people to comedians. You know, how did the idea, uh, first, the name I think is super interesting. uh, And I think I have an idea what it means, but I'd like you to tell us and also then how you got the inspiration to start the podcast.
1: Oh, Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I'm actually really curious what your idea of the, of the reason behind the name is, and then I will tell you. Okay. Well,
0: first I thought that you were the guru and some Viking lineage, because you look, I don't know, Scottish, Irish, you know, Vikingish, Norse to me, um, just from the outside. But then I thought, okay, there's the other side, if we flip it, which is like a Viking is an explorer, uh, but they're also warriors, and maybe you're looking to beat up gurus. No, probably looking to find gurus of different types. I, I'm not really sure, so I'm kind of on both sides
1: of of that fence. Yeah, well, actually, um, Guru Viking is the name of the podcast. Yeah, and Guru because I'm interested in meditation and spiritual things, and that's a lot of what the podcast is about, and. Mm-hmm viking because i have a big red beard i live on a boat and i come from the shetland islands where it is a very Ah. sort of vikingy place so it's a bit uh tongue-in-cheek really it's a little bit of british humor um i'm neither a guru guru nor a viking um of course uh i'm not a guru um because uh well i'm just a dude on a boat i'm not an enlightened guru (laughs) and i'm not a viking because as the scholars will tell us viking is a verb not a noun but In any case, um, they're not around Mm -hmm. anymore either. So it's a bit of a playful, I think, uh, title that also encompasses a little bit of the elements of, I guess, how I present and what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So it's funny you just made a statement.
0: I'm just a dude on a boat. So I assume that, (laughs) that what you're sitting in
1: here is a boat. Oh, yes. I live in the UK, and this is, Mm -hmm. as you know, Mark, um, as we discussed before, this is a canal boat. In the UK, we have this whole network, an arterial network of man-made canals, um, man-made rivers, in a way, or, well, man-made canals. And before, uh, you know, trains and things of that nature, this is how we transported all the goods throughout uh, uh, the UK on these barges, essentially, six foot ten wide and of various lengths, 6 foot 10 wide and 57 foot long. Wow. And they would be pulled along the water by a pony. So there'd be a pony um, (laughs) harnessed to the boat uh, along what they still call now today the towpath, which is the sidewalk at the side of the canal, essentially. And the, um, the pony would pull the boats along. And that's how we would transport goods all around the place. Even though these boats are very heavy, to pull them along is not difficult and a human being can do it quite easily, you know, because it's on the water. So of course, right. eventually they became motorized, and had en- engines in them and so on. And then eventually oh, the a, uh, mm-hmm. goods and, and so on, went to trains and yeah. lorries, et cetera. And And now um, people live on them, including me. That's crazy. So we have a
0: towpath here in Philadelphia uh, in a section of the city called Maniunk. And there's the towpath is there and it's like, you know, a sidewalk and then a a canal, essentially, uh, or a bit of a river next to it. And I never I I just thought they called it the towpath because you're walking on it. But now I know a little bit more. And since we were all British originally (laughs) uh, coming here to form the United States, that's probably where the uh, name came from. That's fascinating. But just a guy on the boat. I'm going to push back a little bit. Uh, and if you, because you're, you're, you're quite interesting, you've done quite a bit of things and, and, um, I would say your activities of daily living for lack of a, of a more common term are, are not ordinary, uh, you know, so, but, and, and I, I don't like doing this, but I want to read something, um, just in the about section from your website to kind of get this discussion going, Of um, It says, Steve is known for his direct grounded approach and inquiry based ethos. And he has extensive experience in elite athletic performance, contemplative and spiritual disciplines, extreme outdoor survival, the arts and human behavior. Not just a guy on a boat. So (laughs) what got you um, interested in all these? I had heard that you had started karate. Maybe I read it in in your bio at age five. Was that something that you chose, or something that your parents put you into?
1: Yes, that's right. I think there were two main streams of influence that at that age, which explain, for example, the podcast and the sorts of things you listed there. And the first one was indeed karate. Uh, I'd learned about. I'd learned that one of my uh, school friends had t- was attending the class, and I just thought it was interesting. So I went along, and my school friend, uh, whose name was Thomas, he didn't last very long, but I did. And as soon as I got into that class, I just fell in love with it. It was quite a traditional format, um, traditional wateroo, uh style karate. Mm. So a lot of key on, a lot of basics, a lot of kata, prearranged forms, and so on. So I really enjoyed the discipline of it, and I enjoyed the uh, fer the controlled ferocity of it, and I enjoyed the uh, aesthetic of it, um, and mm. the embodied nature of it, the ability at that age to channel that energy—I had a lot of energy, I think—to channel it into a sort of ferocious activity, which was at the same time characterized by tremendous discipline and restraint and peace, actually, um, uh, both inner and outer. You know, in terms of the structure of the class and also the mindset of the zanshin—the sort of thing that one attempts to achieve with that, uh, those kind of things. So I fell in love with it immediately. And totally got it, and of course, then naturally started to read around around it, and it doesn't take long when you start to read, especially around the traditional martial arts, you encounter the cultures in which they come from, and then you encountered mm-hmm. the religious context of those cultures too, and then one leads to another, and uh, I read many books about you know martial arts and uh, you know, philosophies and religions of of that of those areas, and uh, fell in love mm-hmm. with those too. And the other, I think, main influence, if we're thinking about the sorts of things I, I, I interview people about in the podcast, is uh, I was an altar boy at that same time. I became an altar boy mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church around the age of five, six, something like that. And it was an interesting experience. I was an altar boy for, for several years. And an altar boy's job in the Catholic Mass, the ritual of the Catholic religion, of course, is the Mass. That's their puja. And so the priest does whatever he does. And the altar boy's job, you dress up in sort of uniform and you carry the implements of the mass around. So you pick up a candle, move it over here. You take the cup to the priest. When he's done with it, you take it away again. You kneel down in this area, ring a bell at a certain time. And then the rest of the time, when you're not engaged in the choreography of the mass, you sit behind the priest, side on, in a bench, and you just sit there and i found it to be very uh, profound ritual mm. experience i didn't get a lot of doctrine my mother had the idea that of this idea of a private faith that you go to the mass to participate in the i suppose a contemplative space a private contemplative space so your participation in the ritual is not the in the sense of coming together with lots of other people who to celebrate or believing the same thing Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think of religion like that. You know, we all get together and we celebrate. Isn't it great we all think the same thing? Or isn't it great we all have certain shared um, ideology or beliefs and so on about whatever it might be? Um, It wasn't about that. It was about this contemplative space, uh, personal contemplative space. And so for one of the examples of that, she would not let us go to the Sunday school or the catechism, Uh which is where they take the children out during the mass at some point point they'll take the children out to a side room and uh, instruct them in the tenets of the religion. So a volunteer will do that. And she made the joke that anybody who wants to be, uh, well, anyone who wants to indoctrinate children probably shouldn't indoctrinate children. So she was a bit right. skeptical of that. Of course, you know, I think the urge to transmit culture, religion, and to, you know, teach children, I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about that. But she was always a little skeptical of um, that kind of thing. So we didn't get the doctrine, my brother and I, who's also an altar boy with me. So pretty low on doctrine, pretty high on ritual and contemplative uh, space. We also went to the early morning mass. The mid morning mm. mass was the main one of the day and that had guitars and tambourines and you know biscuits and coffee mornings and so on. We avoided that and we went to the early morning uh, mass where there was no singing no instrumentation, just the liturgy of the ritual, just un, if you want, um, varnished, uh, ritual. So I, I had a wonderful time doing that. It's similar to karate in some of the ways in which one uses the body in certain pre prearranged ways and, and in similar mm-hmm. in the way that one empties out of one's personality mm-hmm. of, 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 uh, yeah, personality and uh, rumination etc and you just sort of enter into the embodied participation of the thing and then there'd be sort of moving around ringing bells or whatever and then sitting down in the back and i would have just tremendous feelings of peace and bliss and openness um, in that quiet back there of course this was the days before cell phones (laughs) so i don't know (laughs) how much you know that had to do with it too but it was just wonderful so these two things um I think gave me an instinct for, um, I suppose, uh, religious uh, uh, kind of things, as well as embodied kind of things. I would say, Mm -hmm. and I use religious there in in its broad, its very broad sense. Yeah. So
0: I was a couple of parallels, and you were just mentioning the parallel between martial arts and um, and religion. Oh, but first, just a quick side note. I used to live in Tokyo when I worked for a publishing company there. And the son of the founder of Wado Ryu came and visited me and gave me three original hardcover books that his father had written. And I have them on the shelves behind me. Wow. Uh, Just as a little, I don't know, vignette to sneak in. (laughs) Um, So interestingly, when, when we practice martial arts, we cross a threshold from outside into the dojo, right? And now you're in a different, you're in like the martial ritual space. And we have a uniform arm on, which identifies us with the group, and we feel like a different person because maybe now you're the warrior, right? And then when you're doing your kata, for example, it's a ritualistic movement that is um, like a virtual combat of life and death and you have to be in the moment while you're doing it, if you're doing that katas properly. Now with the church, it's almost the same thing because you probably dress in your best clothes for church. Most people do, or they have church clothes that they only wear at church, at least here in the US, and you step into the church and it's a different thing. But instead of a, a warrior space, it's a um, spiritual space and you have your altar boy clothing on, right? And you're doing a different set of rituals. You're, you're carrying the incense or whatever it is that you're doing, and then you're sitting in zazen or something. You know, you're you're meditating there. It's kind of an interesting cross between sacred and profane. And here, at the same time, you're having a warrior side and a and a spiritual side. And what I find interesting is that at such an, a young age, that this kind of thing would just grab you. I think I, I understand the martial arts, but I this but the the, the church part not because it's church, but being able to sit still and be in the moment at that young age and, and embracing it because it feels like part of you, right? Like you feel whole in that space. Um, it, it makes me wonder if you would lay in bed at night and, and just sit and dream of things or you were you know, rather more
1: quiet than boisterous uh, growing up. Um, gosh, that would be a question, I think, for people who knew me then, uh, did I, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the interesting thing about ritual right. is that it can carry you. Uh, it can help, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I think certain expressions of religion are ritualized and others are very strict of ritual. And there are pros and cons to both and i think often one follows the other in a sort of reaction in the history of religion you know let's get rid of all the ritual it's encumbering us and so on and then but then when you do that there can be a loss of some sort of a meaning and all you've got really is yourself sitting there and um that's fine that's fine it's pure it's raw it's rugged but you know soon afterwards um i think from that arises certain very simplified forms and it becomes ritualized is what i'm what i'm saying and i think as a group ritual seems to be essential of some type and you can try to yeah, stamp it yeah. out but it seems to arise in one way or another um even in so-called non-ritualistic settings so mm-hmm. anyway i think that kind of a ritual is is tremendous because it allows you to go beyond yourself it's not about you or well, you're participating but it's not about you it's a it's the ritual itself is older than you the ritual, its focal point is not you, but there's a place that you can participate in it. I think it's the same with, with martial arts, too. There's a community Absolutely. aspect of martial arts. You know, There's something about it. The lineage of it is one thing. The, the, the lineage of the movements themselves, you're doing a mm-hmm. movement that existed before you did it. That kind of thing is uh, has a certain effect. And when you do a kata, there's nothing really original um, in what you're doing. Okay, of course, there's some individual variation due to your body type and your own particular expression, but you know, fundamentally, you're, you know, you're embodying a structure, that prior to you, and there's something I think special about that, and it and it's a good counterpoint for creativity. Creativity Indeed. can spring from that, or be uh, be contrasted with that, in a very interesting way: spontaneity and imp- improvisation. I think there's something about ritual and there's something about lineage of some type that um, clears the decks for spontaneity in a person. One doesn't have to just reinvent the wheel every time. I'm I, I'm just uh, musing here, I suppose. Uh, but what um, did I lay in bed? Yeah, of course. You know, I think most children do. I was so interested in this stuff and I would read about it a lot and I would practice at home know. a lot and I would sit at bed you know and lie in bed at night or wake up in the morning and you know what and dream about it and think about it one, one of the things I used to do in the morning I had a tv in my in my room which I would occasionally uh my parents have told me march out of my room for months at a time uh as a sort of to fast you know from <laughs> tv, TV and then fasting. I'd, like, yeah and then another and then I would when I wake up in the morning I'd turn the tv on and I'd try to listen as quietly as possible. And I had this idea in my mind of being like a monk <sighs> of some sort, you know, training the hearing. Uh and what I found was that if I had the T V very, very low, um, I could hear it. But if I thought, if I tried to th- if I thought about what I was hearing, or I uh, associated through associations or had mental activity basically, um, whilst listening, if the TV was there was a threshold beneath which it the thinking, if you like, would obscure the 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 sound in yes, in some sort of way had, the mind yeah the mind had to go totally quiet totally relaxed and open and then the sound could just sort of come in the ear land in the mind and be understood but if there was any discursive response it would it would mess that up so I would do things like that when I was a, a kid and I'm sure that sort of thing was influenced from you know my fanciful imagination and the sorts of books I was reading. You know, when you're a child i think time space distance yeah. culture those things are a lot more porous so it's very easy to slip into one's imagination uh, you know you read something Don F. Trager book and then okay. next thing you know you're, you're it's the next morning and it comes to you and you and you experiment i did i did a lot of that growing up but it, it's boyish enthusiasm i think
0: yes yes um Wow, a couple of things that I was making notes on every time I'm looking down, I'm making notes because there's so many thoughts I have, but I don't want to interrupt you. One is um, I, I'm a big fan of ritual as well. When, when there's a ritualistic thing, lighting an incense or a certain way that you make your tea or something, it's like you feel, I feel at least, um, more centered, more part of something, more whole, even if it's something simple, you know, And I notice in martial arts schools that have plenty of rituals, you know, um, that the practitioners are uh, not across the board, so I know there's exceptions, are more respectful, humble, um, and so forth. And, And martial arts schools where it's just hit the bag punch, you know, do the stuff, without the respect for the rank or the lineages or the, the temples that came from, and and, and you're not you know, sitting in meditation at the end for a few minutes, the practitioners tend to be more boisterous and more arrogant. Um, um, and that's just, I think it's because it's devoid of that ritual. You know, it just becomes a physical activity. Uh, so you're not really training the spirit or soul during the practice. Um, I don't know, just an observation. Um, And then the idea of arrogance, it's hard to be arrogant. It's very difficult to be arrogant around something that has been there centuries before you, right? I mean, you were saying like that move in that kata was there before you were born, you know? Um, A very well-known jazz pianist once told me, I said, How, you know, man, you're so good and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and he said, man, stop stop talking like that. He said, this jazz was here before I was here. Jazz was always here, you know, before anybody in this room was here. You know, so many jazz pianists were here before I was here. The art is bigger than me. It's bigger than the whole planet because it's it's influenced so many people and then other musical forms and helps people in their lives. How can you become arrogant about your own little playing in such a big, a big thing? Um, so I think that it speaks to that a little bit. Um, the TV, listening at a low threshold. I really love that because I grew up watching the kung fu movies on the weekends from Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest and so forth, and they had you know look your eyes like this without moving your head and. Listen to the you know the, the eight directions and all the, and I was so, so so into it, uh, just like you were saying. and what I noticed now, like you're saying, when you start to process what you were hearing, it disappears. It's like the mind takes over and you're, you're kind of out of the out of that zone or that frequency, and recently i was I was doing uh, receiving a Shaktipat transmission, and these beautiful colors like lava lamps intersecting, but not blending uh, through the space. And as soon as I decided to, oh, let me see if I can move this along the microcosmic orbit or something from Qigong, I lost the colors because my mind got involved. And for that practice, it needs to be a no mind, right? Because I'm receiving something. And as soon as I try to manipulate what I was receiving, it disappeared. And I feel like with the television, you were receiving that sound at a certain frequency. So your body leveled to that frequency or your, you know, and then as soon as you try to manipulate or listen or understand, it disappeared. Do you find that uh, in your meditation practice that when your mind gets more involved in something different than it pulls you just right out of the, out of the moment?
1: Um, yes, I, I suppose depends on the meditation. Uh, I think that there are certain meditations, well, different meditation approaches have different relationship to discursive thought mm-hmm. and so on. And so it would depend on the technique. But certainly there's something about the differentiation between uh, the signal coming in and the response in mm-hmm. the mind, the, re- the, the the cascade of associations and representations and commentary that gets set off. That I think a differentiation between those two things is, Um, something that's emphasized in a lot of different meditation approaches, the untangling of, for example, pain in the body from the emotional and psychological reactivity, and maybe even from the physical bracing against the pain, these things like a rope with many strands seem to weave together and our experience is the same thing. The pain and the suffering that goes along with the pain, um, they're, they're experienced as, as one thing, but teasing apart that rope into its constituent strands. Here's body sensation. That's the pain. There's the the layers of bracing in the body. Here's an emotional response, subtle, maybe or pervasive, perhaps, maybe multi multifaceted, uh, but some sort of emotional response to it. Oh, here's mental activity, casting forward into the future, uh, and it and the uncertainty of what that means, and you know, imagining and fantasizing. Oh, here's reaching into the past. Interesting. Here's the commentary. Here's imagery associated. All of these things quite subtle sometimes one doesn't recognize it there's just pain and then you know and there's one suffers but to, to pull those apart i think is uh emphasized in a lot of meditation traditions and one way to do that i think i mean pain's a great teacher but so is appreciation <laughs> so is appreciation and enjoyment if it's if it's uh approached with 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 you know curiosity and space you know, and quiet, well, maybe not quiet, but space anyway, you know, patience, like you said, receptivity. I think the path of enjoyment can also be very instructive.
0: I think pain is a tremendous teacher. Uh, I grew up, I grew up in chronic pain. I was born in six months, so I was three months premature. My lungs were closed. I wasn't fully developed, was in an incubator for three months before I was allowed out um into the world (laughs) uh and my whole life I suffered chronic pain and migraine daily migraine uh and and tension headaches tons of medications growing up Hmm. um seeing all kinds of specialists and that's what led me on my journey into alternative medicine you know traveling around six Asian countries around the U.S. looking for healers of different types to experience but the the point is that pain is a great teacher uh, you can learn a lot about yourself. you learn a lot about you, your, you are not your pain, you are not your feelings, right? Uh, if you can separate yourself. but pain is also a great distractor and and something that can really it, that generally really holds people back. I wonder how um, um, in your meditation, for example, meditation practice, if you're sitting in lotus position, it's, which is difficult for a lot of people in full lotus, or if you're uh, sitting on your knees in some kind of a seiza position, that when the joints start hurting and the pain starts throbbing, um, how do you work that? How do you kind of separate that out or uh, within yourself? What is your practice for kind of disassociating with the pain or examining the pain and not? Basically diving into it, I would assume rather than fighting against it.
1: Mm. I, yeah, that's an interesting question. For for me, I like to do. Uh, I'm quite fond of what one of my main meditation teachers, Shinzen Young, has called strong determination sitting, mm. um, or Yuza, heroic sitting. I think that that's his play on yaza heroic sitting.
0: sitting. I like it.
1: Yeah. Anyway, um, and strong determination sitting is sitting where you you sit for longer than normal basically and of course that is very dependent maybe it's one hour or half an hour and in strong determination sitting generally you you endeavor not to move maybe with different degrees of strictness maybe you don't move at all and if you lose your attention and you slouch a bit you don't re adjust your posture some some times it's that strict other times you um can adjust your posture only straightening your spine um, another then maybe you could soften it a bit more and maybe you'd be allowed to move your legs but generally speaking the idea is to sit still for one hour four hours whatever the case may be you know eight hours i think there are some some uh, people who claim to be able to do it for days at a time You know, of course um, i can't do that but anyway sitting in general um, and certainly sitting a bit longer than normal than usual pain or discomfort might arise in the body not to mention pain that one just has anyway <laughs> right know, just right. pain that's life you know life pain sometimes but uh, for that i i sort of think of it in two levels first level is is the body acclimatized to the posture because i think if the body is not acclimatized to the posture then there's going to be pain and i think it's of limited use. This is personal opinion, you've seen you asked me about my practice I think it's of limited use to sit through pain in a posture if the body's mm-hmm. not acclimatized to the position. Because what that does, I mean the body's not sufficiently used to the position. Um, if you try and sit cross-legged, for example, in any kind of cross-legged position, or even kneeling on a on a César bench, unless you're really used to that position, it's gonna be it's gonna be uncomfortable fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And if you push through that which you can do, but if you push through it, then the body braces against it and that bracing that tension tends to be the actual obstacle to comfort in the posture. Anyway, I prefer to sit beneath the threshold of stress and strain Mm. while the body is, while the body is acquiring the posture, while it's acclimatizing to it. And that can take however long it takes. I think a lot of people never quite really, get there because they're always, they're either not consistent enough with their sitting or they push too hard in the sitting and the body braces against the position, against the discomfort. And then that, in the a sense, exacerbates the problem, which is with the sort of bracing in general. So then if you sit regularly and not too long, or if it gets uncomfortable, just change position, eventually the body starts to acclimatize and it becomes easier and easier to sit. And then you're able to sit for quite comfortably injuries, you know, injuries and life, other life things aside, but the body gets to be able to sit quite comfortably for, you know, whatever, say an hour or something. Okay.
0: Right.
1: When the body's comfortable, then you might, then, then there's a different kind of pain. Now you're at different kind of pain. It's just the pain of sitting in one position, or it's the pain of tension in the body that surfaces or emotional, psychological material can sometimes. feel painful or can sometimes be associated with pain or just the pressures of the Mm -hmm. body of the body parts on the ground and on each other. And that's a different kind of pain. So then you might choose to sit through that because the body's acclimatized There's low risk of injury. You're experienced. Um, I'd always err myself on the side of not injuring myself. I'd always err safely on that side, but actually there's, when you're used to it, used to the position, there's quite a, quite a lot of uh, uh, scope for sitting through pain without risk of injury. Right. Anyway, but this is not something I, I would suggest, first of all, but then then what do you do? Well, you've got a few choices. You've got a few choices. Generally, and it depends on your technique, um, and I've dabbled with all of these, so um, it's somewhat relevant to your question of what would I do? Depends on the technique. Generally, you've got two choices you can continue whatever technique you're doing in your sit and each technique will have some way of dealing with the pain either by letting it go on in the background or having it in the foreground and working with it in some sort of way. Depends on the technique. Each technique will be different. So for example, if you're focusing on your breath and you have physical pain in the body, then the training of that sort of a technique, generally, there's different kinds of breath techniques, but generally speaking, you just keep focusing on the breath. And you relax, release, contact with the pain and let it go on in the background without push or pull. And if you get drawn into the pain, you return to the breath. But it's a training in relaxing, releasing. A little bit like letting a dog off the leash in a park. When you let your dog off the leash in a park, you don't know what the dog's going to do. Maybe he'll be placid and walk with you and sniff a few things, you know. Or maybe the dog will have the zoomies and start running around and chasing squirrels. You don't know what's going to happen. And that's the same thing. When you relax, release, uh, the pain and you let it go on in the background without push or pull, it's not guaranteed that it's going to fade away into some sort of Zen bliss. Maybe it becomes more intense. Maybe it begins to in- infuse the entire body. Maybe it sets off a whole cascade of reactions or, or maybe it disappears or any combination or any, anywhere on that spectrum. So that's one thing you can do is just continue with your technique. And if the pain is not foregrounded in that technique, the body sensation of that type is not foregrounded you just let it go in the background but there are other techniques where um, it is foregrounded you focus on the pain you merge with the pain or you as I mentioned before untangle the strands of inner experience of which the physical sensation is only one so you might check all the inner systems contact the pain look at the mental image check the mental image check the mental talk check the emotional body and you cycle through that or hold them in some two, three, four at a time, so that you begin to, you know, like a rope with many strands, as I mentioned before, the strands, Mm -hmm. when they're wound together, support each other. When the strands are pulled apart, the strands are still there. You've got 10 points of pain, 10 points of emotional uh, reaction, 10 points of mental image, for example. But rather than multiplying 10 times 10 times 10, 1,000, they just sort of it's 10 plus 10 plus 10 because they can't interact in that same way maybe i'll give you an example um one time i was on a retreat and uh i was doing you know meditating and so on and i had tremendous anxiety in my body i'm not particularly prone to anxiety myself but sometimes on retreats you have some retreats where nothing much happens some retreats very blissful some retreats can be a bit hellish and stuff comes up so for some reason this anxiety was there it was like a ball of anxiety like those old windows 95 screensavers like lava lamp you know like your like your vision maybe it was like a lava lamp of anxiety in my chest like that and sort of floating there and um if i focused on it it would dissipate and spread through the body as a kind of feeling of uh undifferentiated energy sort of feeling if i focused on it but as soon as I took my attention off it or did anything else, it would come back again. And I thought, this is so strange. And I had to focus on it, would go away, focus on it, go away, focus on it, go away. And then I thought, let me check my other inner systems. So I looked and I noticed my, my mental image. There was some activity there. I hadn't noticed it before because it was very subtle. <laughs> but my, my main, I was noticing the pain. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, right. i was noticing the anxiety the squeaky wheel gets the grease so of course my attention was fixed on that but i didn't notice there was subtle mental activity going on image so i checked that and i kept one eye on the image and i kept sort of one eye one meditation eye on the anxiety <laughs> and um what i found was the mind was flashing an image a disturbing image of some type stressful image and then a quarter of a second later or whatever the body was reacting. The emotional body was reacting with, with a sort of explosion of anxiety mm-hmm. in the chest, and I watched that happen. Mind would flash an image, like the mind was going "boo," and the body was jumping with anxiety. Yes. And it was so interesting. Some of these images were generically, uh, you know, low-level stressful images. Others were more imaginatively disturbing, of various types. Um, some of them had relevance biographically to me. Others didn't. Just just generically just dis- dis- distressing stuff, um, light or heavy. And so I kept an eye on both of these and I watched image, reaction, image, reaction, image, reaction. image. And as I continued to observe this, the power of the image to trigger the reaction reduced, began to reduce, reduce, reduce until just the image was flashing, but no reaction. The body Mm. was peaceful and the image and then the images got faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until it was like riffling a deck of cards. It was like images, images going fast, 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 like that, like a Rolodex, you know, Yes. like that. And then suddenly the images stopped the point anyway, is that, um, that that's another sort of style of technique to observe the way in which the inner elements, uh, interact. And, and then what you learn from that is, and, you know, slowly you see it many times you you experience it many times that sort of thing many times you eventually recognize that there's interactivity going on in the system and you're less you, you see it easier you recognize it quicker and the inner elements in general have less have less power to congeal and multiply their effect by mm-hmm. reacting against each other generally when you start to see get a bit more uh you know incrementally over time, at least in my experience, I think some people, according to my guests, you know, one experience and, you know, they, 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 it's like permanence or something. But for me, it's more the case of seeing it again and again and again and gradually, gradually, gradually getting a little bit wiser to the way in which the inner system works. So there's, but there are other techniques too, where you just don't do anything. You just sit there and you, you know, all that stuff I just described, it's the problem, according to some meditation mm-hmm. techniques. you got to let go of all that, all this, look at this, examine that. You know, all all this is problematic, actually, in meditation. It obs- obscures meditation. It's the self-conscious, anxious grasping of the ego seeking to perpetuate itself through a sort of pseudo meditation, yes. right? So there's other s- approaches like that. I think they're also very profound. So I recognize that there's a whole array. Um, we could probably talk for another three hours about even more ways in which other techniques might yes. relate to, you know, what your question is. Um, I like all of them really, um, and I think I'm sort of I have moderate um, uh, grasp of certain fun- fundamentals of certain different kinds of techniques. I've had teachers that have been, who have been quite eclectic in that sense. Uh, so I, I like to do I appreciate the different ones right. Sh- Shinzen I mentioned is one of my main meditation teachers. He said that one of his goals for us as his students was that we would be able to go into any contemplative situation and be able to practice with them on their own terms Mm. so to go into an advaita vedanta sort of situation maybe and not just secretly be doing i don't know zen or vipassana or whatever but to actually be able to engage on their terms Mm. with their technique as one of them or to be able to then go in a zen place and and be able to give oneself to that situation that particular technique that particular way of doing things and not secretly be you know be doing another technique you know whilst the, the zen retreats going on around you or to go into a vipassana retreat for example or to go into a christian contemplative situation or whatever the case may be and and be able to have a, an ability or an appreciation for those different ways of working it's such that one could um, join in um he is a very eclectic Uh, approach there which i've benefited greatly from i share that spirit actually and i was uh, lucky to find someone like shinzen i've had other teachers too who've been also remarkable but on the subject of shinzen um he has always had that so he's taught us in a very eclectic way that's wonderful it's uh it
0: broadens your practice right it reduces the ego and it's like you are one of not I'm just one of Vipassana or I'm one of Zen, I'm one of all, you know, it's a it's a me and you, not a us and them, you know, it's like we're together. That kind of, of outlook is more in line with also my worldview of just being one, one family, you know, you're a martial artist, go to any group and just go in and train, it's okay. You meditate, you should be able to go to any discipline without thinking ours is better, ours is, and just, join in and be part of that, be part of that. I think it's wonderful. I I want to backtrack on two things, Um, not backtrack, but just jump backwards a minute. Um, When you weren't going to Sunday school, you weren't getting um, indoctrinated, but were you at home? Was there a, were you and your family uh, reading the Bible or talking about religion at home, or it was just one day a week you went in to join in in this ritual?
1: Um we, no we weren't reading I I we weren't reading the bible I read the bible um uh myself and looked into it uh that's a funny story how that came to be actually um actually uh we had a, a member of a of a christian some members missionaries members of a christian sect who would kn- door, do door knocking yeah, different. There are several sects that sects that do that, and we had several of them on Shetland, the island in which on which I grew up. And uh, a pair of them came knocking at the door, and I went to meet them, and they gave me a tract and so on. And because, and I was, um, I wouldn't say offended by their prosthetism, isn't quite the right word, but something <clears throat> about it. Uh, seemed off to me the way, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people think these door knockers are uh, right. a bit, you know, a bit annoying, right. But I was, you know, it's something about, it. so I took the tract and we had a Bible and I looked at the Bible and would read, was reading and comparing and was tra- basically preparing points to, to discuss um, what was in their tract and whether or not it matched, you know, it was a sort of what are you going to go after you die kind of tract. And I, and anyway, that's not really the point of the tract exactly the point is you know i got really into the bible at that time uh and i think that's what's one of the things that sparked it or at least that yeah that sparked it the conditions were there already yeah. playing around but then that was one of the sparks and i found the bible so fascinating as a piece of literature and also as a religious document so cool and so interesting um i feel that way about a lot of different religious texts actually and historical texts but i i like i, I enjoyed reading it a lot so I say the uh, we didn't read the Bible together. We did some, you know, we had a few prayers. You know, is in a way folk spirituality. I think mm-hmm. kind of folk spirituality uh, in those early years. That was very much the case.
0: Yeah. Now, at one point, you you had written a novel that won a an award, and because of that, you met a Celtic mystic who then mentored you as well. Was was there a, um, you can please tell us a little about that. And just as an add on, was that the same, because I'm not familiar, is it the same Bible or same books as the Catholic Bible that, or were there different teachings that you were Mm -hmm. um, brought into through that experience in that time?
1: Yeah. Well, there are, there are different versions of the Bible, different, as you I expect know canonical sense yeah. catholic bible has some more books than your standard protestant bible has for example the orthodox christians have even more books i think if i've got that the right way around than even the catholics do so you know there's difference about and there has been difference historically even when within the same sects as to how many books should be considered canonical right so uh and a lot of saints and theologians and different people throughout history have worked with a more limited canonical set than we would have now just because that's all they had available to them or in some cases broader actually or more different or, or you know different but anyway uh i should say that yes it's true i wrote a book uh in my teenage years that was a novel that was um won a writing award and that brought me to the attention of this uh mystic he was a writer christian writer and i say mystic in the sense that he was Very much into the direct experience of that sort of thing that sort of use of the word mystic and he was very fascinated with celtic christianity and the particular character of uh, of celtic christianity and its history and so on uh at that time in my teenage years i had what you could well perhaps i'll just say this with him um there was a lot of focus on. I, so I worked with him, worked for him. So even, it, be, it became a situation where I joined his his writing group on on the basis of this book okay. that I wrote, uh, which I think was notable for its length more than its quality, but nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I got the prize because they just didn't want to read that thing yeah <laughs> or if was, or if it was any good you know who who knows yeah. but anyway, I got into his writing group and there he would give us these writing exercises of various types and i I wrote something and something about what I'd written uh struck him and we we hit it off and we entered into a kind of spiritual mentorship which he compared as is often compared in Christian circles to the, an elijah elisha kind of mentorship. Mm. And uh, these are two biblical characters, one of whom mentored the other, Elijah you know, was the sort of guru, I suppose, of uh, Elisha. And Elisha succeeded or followed um, the ministry of Elijah, Old Testament stuff, you know. But anyway, it's a sort of model of mentorship in a way. And, uh, but also I would work, I worked with him and worked for him as a sort of PA dog's body. And he'd give me lots of interesting tasks, uh, most of which were entering his handwritten manuscript corrections, Mm. back into the computer and he always encouraged me because he was very encouraging and uh, attempting to cultivate me as a writer and as a sort of thinking person I suppose he'd always encourage me if I ever had any thoughts just to you know put a hashtag and write all my thoughts in red in red you know highlighted in red and if I had any so you know of course I probably just thought nonsense you know <laughs> but Ooh. he always encouraged me and i expect he ignored most of it but he always encouraged me to share my thoughts and write in the in the manuscript which then each morning he'd print out and sit very early in the morning before i'd arrive at his house and he'd do all his handwritten manuscript corrections and, wow. so, and that's how it would go and i did you know we had other jobs too uh, little jobs like that but mostly that's what i was doing for hours and hours a day and it was great i really really enjoyed it and from a sort of spiritual point of view or from the religious point of view, the emphasis was very much on um, listening to God, listening to the still small voice, as he called it, and as it's called in the Bible, the still small voice, that sort of tuning in. There are also elements of, um, I suppose you could say, sort of somewhat oracular elements i would say to it as well as elements of uh perception one of the things that was emphasized was this idea of seeing with god's eyes you know seeing trying to see people with god's eyes mm-hmm. and rather than seeing them in terms of their relationship to you seeing them more as god sees them you know, see that that way is one of the ways you can love your enemies and that's one of the ways you can begin to get it a different perspective on a situation—you're seeing just not your own perspective, but another perspective. So mm-hmm. we do things of that nature, um, and, many, men, and many other things. I'm sort of just skimming it, really, skimming the, the the surface of it. Some of it I think might sound a bit strange, but those are some those are some of the hints of it. And it was a wonderful time, and he was a very open, open-minded person, and was a great counterweight to the institutional church, which I, as I became a teenager, and as I broadened out of the Catholic only situation into just being involved with a wider kind of Christian milieu at that time. And I had a bit of a fundamentalist phase too. I had a bit of, um, you know, kind of born again, happy clappy fundamentalist phase for two, three years there. He was a great counterweight to that and uh, a great counterweight to the institutional difficulties that I faced with the church, um, which I think, it's the same old story that we all know, you know, the, what churches do, especially, the, uh, you know, provincial churches and church um, systems do to, you know, people in in their midst. It's not, you know, pleasant yes. generally. And so I had, you know, my, my own uh, uh, rubbing up against that sort of thing. And it was distressing for me, very distressing indeed at that time. And he was a great counterbalance to that. He always encouraged me without indulging me and uh, mm. modeled a different way of, a different way of being and a different sort of employment lifestyle too. I and mean, he just, his job was just to write things, think things and engage with various different, um, you know, perform various different services, um, f- functions, I suppose, I don't mean services as in masses, I mean, he, you know, perform functions and so on, and he had an international business, etc. And so, you know, I, I think I learned a lot from him also about how to live that kind of a life. Mm-hmm. And although I myself am not a Christian mystic or a Christian writer, myself, or really even a Christian, maybe in the loosest possible sense, um, um, more general than that. Now I'd say, I think a lot of those imprints have, uh, carried forward, forward in me the way I live my life now. So yeah. he was wonderful, uh, wonderful mentor and a wonderful friend.
0: Very good. I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, mentor discipleship, you know, having somebody right there in your corner to lead you and guide you, but not coddle and give, you know, um but to give you the tools to to think how to act how to feel how to process right rather than here's here's the answer to your problem you want here's a skill to help you solve that problem or a way to look around it that maybe it's not a problem
1: yes i think the structure of it was mainly uh learning by osmosis and proximity so there wasn't a great deal of sitting down and sort of encouraging me and you know, what am I thinking? And what am I, you know, where am I going? And what am I, you know, bring my writing? It wasn't that kind of a situation. It was more, I was just completely in assisting what he was doing. Um, there wasn't really much sense. I mean, he was open to my thoughts and and so on, but I don't think there was much expectation that I would be coming up with anything particularly interesting at that stage in my development. And, um, you know, and he was right about that. And I certainly didn't feel that I had anything particularly, you know, burning inside that you know it was different so it was a, a mentorship in that's like an apprenticeship in the sense mm-hmm. that really i was just following him around all the time whatever he was doing i was doing and i was you know when you write in the corrections his when i was writing in his corrections into the manuscript that's a great training in what oh, well absolutely. in language and how he thinks about things and how he edits there's so much that gets taught there in doing that grunt work that um you know, and yes, he encouraged me to, in brackets and red type, you know, share my thoughts and reflections on and so on. And, you know, and I did uh, unabashedly. Um, I, I cringe now to think the sort of stuff I would have uh, you know, come out, come up with. But, you know, uh, he, he did that. So uh, most of the learning, I think, was came through osmosis and, and mimicry and doing dog's body work.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is the best When way I was
0: When mm-hmm. <laughs> I was teaching way. myself um, how to become a writer... I used to go to the used bookstores that I could find and find old copies of something called the Paris Review. And the Paris Review was it came out in Paris and was reviews of books of the time in the 50s, 60s, you know, big, great writers. And what they often had in there, aside from interviews, was their edit notes. So they would have a typed, you know, manuscript page or two or three with the author's notes and corrections, word changes, you know, and I would just look at that and say, why is he switching the word that's there for this word? Like, what is that meaning difference? And, you know, he moves the comma to here, and that changes maybe the meaning or the grouping of words. And I learned a lot by those techniques. So I understand how, even if at the time you don't think you're learning, maybe, or you did think you were learning, but Hand putting in corrections over something you've read brings like another level of understanding if the writer has a depth of understanding because they're obviously changing, making the changes on purpose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So also, it, w- is it about this time that you started fencing for this with the Scottish fencing team? At, w- at what age did that begin? And say the the ryu you drop drop off or was there an overlap and was this kind of apprenticeship in the same period
1: yeah it was all um in the same sort of period early teens i think uh i i'd have to look it up i'd have to track it down exactly but at some point there was some i heard about this that there was a fencing club on the island and uh you know we had a, a coach there who'd come to the island for his own reasons and um Andy Alderman and what amazing coach, really fantastic much better coach than we had any business having on the island. <laughs> but if Shetland was that sort of place, it would occasionally attract very interesting people, like the um Christian Mystic I mentioned, uh, because it's a beautiful place, it's rugged, it's remote, uh, but it's interesting. So it did attract interesting characters, uh, actually from outside. Anyway, and this coach was one of them. And I went along same story really as Starting I just went along out of curiosity, and I loved it. It had yeah. something that I was missing at that point in my development in karate, which was competition. Mm. I wanted really; I was craving competition. I was craving, if you'll excuse the pun, the cut and thrust, yes, of competition. And um, our club was not heavily inter- interested in that. We did a lot of, you know, we did sparring and so on. We had tournaments, you know, once every couple of years, you know, in our own club. But uh, you know, I was yearning for competition. And I think it's probably due to my age at that time. And I found it in fencing and fencing had a lot of the things that karate had rigorous technique, uh, discipline, um, et cetera, et cetera. the embodied aspect, the combative element too, but crucially it had this opportunity for competition. And I fell in love with it for that reason. And gradually the karate dropped off sadly. And I, you know, sad about that, but, uh, and the fencing took over. And you're right. Yes, I didn't. I was indeed selected for the Scottish team uh, in my teens at some point or another. I have a the newspaper clipping somewhere of a young, my much younger self holding the a young sword. Young guru Viking. Yeah, young young guru. Yeah, lit, guru let, Vi- lit. Viking lit. Guru Viking lit. Viking lit. Yeah, Viking lit <laughs> with yes. my sword. You know, I was it was the sabre squad, and yeah, it was wonderful. And I yeah. we, I had wonderful time there, training in that club and competing, uh, in fencing. Yeah, it was great. Wonderful. And obviously, um, I mean, you can't tell from what you're
0: wearing here, but I've, I've seen some videos, some, um, videos of you on your, on your website, uh, lifting heavy weights around and things, and you have a developed physique. So weight, I I would assume that weight training, um, had, had come into the picture at some point.
1: Yeah strength training yeah. yeah i was very interested in that from my, also from childhood my father mm-hmm. was had what some uh bodybuilding uh books you know that famous okay. arnold schwarzenegger biography yes. half of which is a biography half of which is training um we had that and several other books my father had been quite passionate uh amateur Um, I don't mean in sense of competing. I mean, he wasn't competing, you know, um, bodybuilder um, in my, when I was a baby, I suppose, around that time before. So anyway, so we had weights in the garage and he taught me how to lift weights. And I was desperate, desperate to do, to train, to do weightlifting and so on. And the rule was when I became a teenager, I could start. So before then I did a lot of bodyweight stuff, very influenced by the training records of Bruce Lee. You well know, you know, he had a lot of those. And those were published widely at that time. Yeah. And they were, you know, advertised in the Functional in the combat magazines. Yeah. You know, and so you could write in and get D V D or you could write in and get books. So I was I, I got all those books that I could find. Um and I would write out those regimes where I'd write out the the book Dao of Ji Kondo. I wrote that book out with its um Uh, with its stick images and so on that it has in it Mm -hmm. i was very into it i don't know why i did that but i you know but i read it out and i found that that's sort of quite philosophical and he had his regimes there and i'd write out uh workout regimes for myself and i would do them involving of course mobility of various types and you know body weight things i was very keen on that and as soon as i could in my teenage years um when i was you know given the go-ahead and my father showed me how to gave me my first sort of orientation as to how to lift weights, how to bench press or whatever the case is, I began training very enthusiastically. But yes, as you correctly point out, um, you wouldn't know it perhaps to see me. <laughs> not Well,
0: you're wearing a very loose fitting shirt, you know. Yes, I do and that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's kind of like not not being a peacock. Look at me, look at me, look at me. But I think from part of your spiritual training, there's a humility there. Uh, well, I think things. it's
1: actually maybe a little bit of Machiavellianism. The truth be told, <laughs> I, I, that you know, I am sure that we've read all the same books at around the same age. Yes. So I'm sharing this. I wouldn't say this normally in an interview, but because you know, because it's you, we talked before about your, you know, your career as a martial artist and writer and publisher and so on. So that's a little bit why I I'd say this. But you know, mm. I read, of course, um, No Show, you know, Fi- Book of Five Rings, and sure. The Art of War, this sort mm-hmm. of thing. And in The Art of War, one of the maxims that I read very early on in my boy, boyhood that I found to be very, that's been defining for me, is when you're strong, appear weak, and when you're weak, appear strong. But particularly when you're strong, appear weak. In other words, yeah. in The Art of War, there's a lot about deception, perception, and the advantage or disadvantage of showing strength, which is necessary sometimes, but also obscuring strength, or obscuring the mm-hmm. precise dimensions of one's strength. Or the precise, um, uh, you know, d- uh, dimensions of one's capacities. So it's a habit of mine to obscure um, the precise dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like I said, I tend to dress in a little bit of uh, yeah, disguise, uh, disguising way in that sense. You know, yeah. That's true. That's something yeah. that's yeah. My my uh, my close friends know that about me, and uh, you have picked it up. Yeah, for interesting. <laughs> um. So now I
0: want to draw kind of a a timeline to something and you, and you can correct me and fill in, fill in the blanks. So just from our conversation here, I see there's karate, writing, fencing, meditation, weight training, you know, across decades, a few, you know, in different intensities. And then I'm really interested in the movement koan method that you developed. Because it seems to me to be almost an outgrowth of all of that and a distillation, uh, if I'm correct. And the use of the term koan is very interesting to me because I think of it as, you know, a Zen koan, but this is a, a physical body koan or something. Um, could you talk a little bit about that method that you've developed?
1: Yes, that's right. We we discussed this off air, you and I. Um, yes. You're interested in that. Yeah. Well, movement koan, you're right, it does come from all of those sorts of influences, that's right. And it's movement because it involves moving the body in joint nourishing ways and, uh, and to stimulate coordination and other physical skills. And then the koan part, like you said, well, koan, of course, as you know, is a Zen, kind of like a Zen riddle. It's mm-hmm. it, people cringe at the use of the word riddle here, but it's a basically a, it's a type of training technique used in Zen traditions where the Roshi, the teacher, will give you some kind of uh riddle in a way. Uh, what's mm-hmm. the sound of one hand clapping? Does a dog have Buddha nature? Show me your face before you were born, that kind of thing. And as in that training style, you go away and you kind of chew on that, you think about that in your meditation in general. And some people can say it's it's a these are setups that don't make any sense, but it's not that. I think it's that they make a kind of Zen sense. They make right. a kind of Zen sense. So they're a training in a kind of Zen way of doing things. And they're seen as both a means to awakening or Kensho Satori, a training technique to get you to your first uh, and subsequent, perhaps, glimpses of enlightenment or, you know, epiphany. But they're also conceived of as post-Satori or post-Kensho trainings, post-awakening trainings. Um, they can serve both purposes so um you know because it's a great question isn't it what do you do after you've had your an epiphany in meditation do you just keep on going or is there something you should change and so on different systems have different ideas anyway koan Zen Cohen training straddles both sides of that epiphany that they that they you know go for in Zen or in certain types of Zen particularly Rinzai but anyway so in movement crime method in a way we're setting up we're posing questions we're setting up um, riddles in a way, in the body movement. Um, and I'll give you an example. One might be, and there are DVD down, DVD downloads and so on on my site about this, but one of the, uh, one might be, we might stand on one leg and then swing the other leg you know, back and forth gent- no, gently. Not like, you know, Las Vegas dance or something, but, you know, just gently. <laughs> and <laughs> so you're bouncing on one leg. And then I might... I encourage people to relax the base leg, see how relaxed the base leg and foot can be while still maintaining the posture. Mm. Minimum necessary muscular activation, minimum possible muscular activation. You'd be totally relaxed on the ground, but so you need a certain degree of activation, certain degree of tension, if you like in order to maintain the posture. So minimum necessary muscular activation, we're questioning the layers of tension involved in holding that base leg, you know, holding oneself in that position while the other leg is swinging. And that's the setup. And there are a few things that 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 might lead to you might notice. One of them is that when you relax the tension in the leg, that's excess tension that's not needed for just simply standing there. One of the things you might notice is the feeling of the fatigue subjectively spikes, and that's because we don't only use tension for the action that it appears to be for, which in this case is standing. We also use tension. There are other uses for it. One of those uses is as a sort of anesthesia or kind of bracing against feeling. So in other words, some of that tension is a kind of anesthesia or bracing against feeling. Feeling what? Well, feeling the muscular fatigue. So when you relax those layers of tension, you feel more. Mm. And um, so tension and feeling, there's a relationship there. And of course, using muscular tension to drown out the product of muscular tension, which is muscular fatigue, is not a great long-term strategy, but we do it. So there's a disambiguation there. We realize that there's a use of tension here that may may have not been obvious before. We just thought we're trying to stay on one leg, but no, there are other layers. Another use of tension might be, you might notice that there's a bracing in the body in anticipation of future balancing needs. There's Mm -hmm. a bracing in anticipation. So you think, okay, I'm balancing here over a period of time, So there can be a subtle bracing in the body to be ready to respond to any fluctuations and balance needs that may need to be uh, responded to. And to that, I might say, you don't need to balance over a period of time. All you need to do is balance now. And if you're balanced now, you'll be balanced now. In fact, trying to balance now and trying to balance in the future or across time, it's not possible. Actually. And that extra tension and extra energy that's used to sort of to anticipate that isn't isn't needed. Just simply balance now. Balance now. And you'll find that you're balanced. <laughs> you're still balancing. Right. Now. After all, when when else can you balance? So that can also both of those I think, um I've explained them a bit, but both of those can lead to many more implications, many more aha's, many more um insights that go beyond the body itself. So I like to work with the body, partly because I'm, I think, a physical person. I'm kind of, that's my realm, I think, you know, in a way. But I have found that if one gets an aha or a learning in the body, somehow it seems to percolate up and it becomes easier to see how that applies in all kinds of situations in terms of relationship, the use of effort in relationship, for example, how much of that is in the service of communication how much of it is an anesthesia um, um, and anesthetizing what what feeling how many how much of it is you know a sort of anticipation and so on so you can begin to get more efficiency this is classic this is classic uh kata this is classic key on stuff yes. where you have to learn to uh, the movements and then you have to purify the movements of excess anything excess actually including muscular tension including you know conceptual uh, uh, stuff whatever the case is right you have to you ha- you you it purge it and well, well the technique itself does that if you continue to work with it that stuff ought to eventually get purged i think it's one of the best uses of the basics you know whether it helps you or not in a street fight is is one thing it's been debate that but what it certainly can do is it can it can be a kind of crucible for this sort of thing so there's a movement koan and so um i find you know you can hear this sort of thing conceptually and understand oh yeah different uses of tension okay very interesting that's an interesting point i like that but for that to show up in the body or for that to be available to you um, in stressful times or times of conflict it takes a bodily learning for that to happen in my experience anyway one needs a somatic reference point so that there's a sense in which one can feel it and then from that feeling apply it to more conceptual situations or psychological, emotional, relational situations or strategy, life, business, strategy, and so on. So that's a little bit about movement command method. So it's just sort of good joint nourishing movements, training of skills, like coordination, opposing limb movements, um, balance, all sorts of things are trained from a physical skill point of view, um, getting up and down off the floor in various different Mm. skillful ways. Uh, but it's all, also has this element of, if you want, coan. in in it. Yes. Setting up these venues for investigation and inquiry that the student can investigate. I don't necessarily give them the answers or say this is what you should learn from that, because actually the advantage of setting up inquiry over an imposition of my answer, an inquiry, is the student can then have their own insights, maybe even insights that I hadn't anticipated. So that's something of the approach of movement method
0: so it's pretty what i find interesting about it i mean there's many things to find interesting but one of the things conceptually or intellectually that i find interesting about this method is that it's it's basically um be in the moment there's only here and there's only now there's no past there's no future but rather than doing it from a mental psychological perspective you're doing it from a somatic you're teaching it from that concept from a somatic perspective. I think that's really
1: cool. Um, well, you know, that's right. It is a somatic uh, emphasis. And I know you've done this, I'm sure. In martial arts, what's a classic thing that one does, especially in when you're training as a young person, is you hold positions for a long period of time. That's a classic one, right? Stick yeah. your arm out, you know, and you just hold it for a while. Or you do a horse dance. you know, stuff Horse like that. dance and hold it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's classic. And, um, you know, Okay, that has certain benefits uh, and, and so on and, and maybe drawbacks too. But one of the things that I found it taught me, and we, we did this in my, in my karate, uh, karate training, and I really loved it for the, if you want, mental, psychological, spiritual effect and the bodily effect. Very quickly, you learn these lessons. If The, the secret to endurance in that kind of a situation is actually relaxation. It's right. not strength. It's, it's a kind of strength it's not strength that comes from um the hardening of the body and if you want the effort involved it actually comes from a perf- yeah, profound relaxation but unfortunately when you relax or well unfortunately whatever you you come straight into contact with the felt experience one of the things about trying to tough through grit through and so on is you kind of you override the feeling and you try to outlast it but when you relax you have to actually meet it you have to, it takes away the guarding between you and the experience. And so you learn things like that, that if you think about how long you're going to do it for, you you can't afford that. Just feel, just be with it. And if you can just be with it, very often what happens is that pain loses its negative connotation. It loses hedonic valence and it just becomes experience, just becomes sensation. And there can be a tremendous unification of body and mind at that point. And it feels like you can go on forever in the sense that, there's no sense of having to endure. You just simply are doing it, <laughs> you know. And uh, it's a relief of all of that stuff—the sort of apparatus of thinking, of bracing against feeling, or anticipation of the future, thinking in temporal way. You just simply have that kind of unification. I think it's one of the the best fruits of that kind of a training approach. Does it? Is it the best way to build? physical strength or muscular endurance or power, I mean, maybe not, uh, you know, is it the, is it going to help you in a street fight or, a, you know, a cage fight? Probably not, but it, it's benefits in the ways I've just described, I think are far more precious and, uh, uh, more broadly applicable in some ways. Well, it's than, a psychosomatic
0: training, you know, yeah. keep your mind in the moment and have the body in the moment and together it's gonna find its own place. It's not meant for the other things, really, even though the result of it, if done properly, will definitely help you with your martial arts or your ballet or your interpersonal relationships, whatever they may be, because you're learning up, up, up to balance in the moment, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in There's a Qigong method that I practice, um, one among several called Janjuang, which are standing post exercises and um i have a new student who's who just came on to study with me with this practice he's 22. uh he drives three hours round trip each week uh to to come and just stand stand still with me you know and we spend an hour standing and what i find interesting about that is um you know um water seeks its own level, right? So the rivers, the streams, they seek their own level. And when you're just standing and not moving at all, not moving your fingers, not moving your eyes, you know, um, you feel the pain, you feel the tension, all the things you've been describing, but then the muscles eventually re- seek their find their own relaxation. The joints drop, the shoulders drop, the hips curl correctly and all that tension just disappears, um, and you could feel like you could stand forever, except oh. you get hungry and you have to eat. <laughs> yeah, uh, but and it's an interesting parallel to when um, I had my my daily migraine headaches um, that even on the medications, I was I don't know seven or eight pills a day of of different medications for them. Uh, it, from like age, I don't know, seven to 32. Um, until I cured myself of them, but uh, was that the headache would be pounding, especially the the migraines cluster headache behind one eye it feels like a rocker. Somebody put a screwdriver in your head here. And as long as you had tension in the body, you could kind of withstand it, uh, uh, you know, a right. little bit it's like you're at a point yeah. where the meds aren't only can do so much, but it's still here. But as long as you're tense and you're doing things, you can kind of... But as soon as I would just, end of the day, lay on the bed, allow Mm -hmm. myself to relax, oh, my God. It was like 20 times the the pain. But if I could sit there with it and just let it go, not having the tension helped it move and start to decrease. It's almost like Mm -hmm. the tension kept it down, but it's also kept the uh, pressure inside between... I don't know the muscles tendons nerves capillaries uh you know uh, blood vessels whatever it was is being compressed because you're tense uh you know so when you let it go it's like now they can move to the fullest and you feel that pounding um and it was the only way to to let it go down a bit and tons of ice (laughs) for the pain but I, i i i just remembering like you're saying when you when you let go in your sitting meditation practices you really feel the pain more and you can either meet that pain or disassociate from the pain or this or that it's it's, whether it's a qigong or or a meditation or a migraine headache or you know arthritis i think it's all this it's the human condition we have pain and we have to deal with the different psychological effects of that pain and find practices to deal with it
1: Yes, I think that's very interesting indeed. I would like to know how you cured yourself at 32. Um, But I would also say that um, I think a lot of times we hold on to pain uh, of all types for that reason, actually. Right. It's a little bit like in a fight where you grab onto someone, you know, at least while you're hitting them, at least you know where they are, right? Right, and if you let them off the leash, like the dog off the leash, then you don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes right. that one, we we hold on to pain of various types, not just physical. We hold on to it when it's it's finished. Actually, it's done, but we still hold it out of habit or out of the initial response to the pain, and we're holding a pain that is no longer really the only thing keeping it there. It's the it's been healed. The only thing keeping it there is our holding on to it. And that sounds a little bit, you know, maybe that sounds a little bit West coast or something, but um, I think that's the case physically often a lot of physical rehabilitation. A a big aspect of it is training the body how to experience itself as healed after it's held, you know, he got some sort of shoulder thing or something like this. A lot of times it's how can you re re update the mind body uh, sense of itself as being fixed because mysterious pains do persist when the, the physical if you want structural yes yeah, injury has been has been repaired why is there still pain what about this phantom pain or this referred pain or the way in which the, so the pains show up at other places in the body due mm-hmm. to one one local injury that a lot of that stuff yeah there's a lot it's it's um i think has tremendous implications for healing what you're talking about uh, but uh would you say something about how it was you healed yourself at 32 yeah
0: um i wrote a book about it called um, called what? Headaches Relieved. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or anywhere where they have books. I started a search. Um, my father was a physician. My mother's a psychologist. Both of them have passed, but they, um, they were always helping me treat the headache from their perspectives. My mother from a psychosomatic, psychological therapy thing. Not, not them treating me, but sending me out for treatment, you know. And my father, who was an osteopathic physician um, rather than a medical doctor, um, believed in acupuncture, chiropractic, diet therapy, exercise, in addition to the medication. So he was bringing me to chiropractors from age ten. His supplements—he was very big on supplementation—and and plus, you know, taking me to doctors for various things and and I, I felt in my body, I felt in my spirit that I was going to die at 26 from some kind of a brain hemorrhage. I mean, it was unbearable, the daily pain on medicine all day. The daily there was like a numbness in my body, but the pains would still break through and be pounding. And like, how is this? Is there a tumor? You know, so when I was old enough to take the train by myself into, we lived in suburban Philadelphia. Into Philadelphia, I would go to Chinatown and meet with the Chinese herbal doctors uh, and the acupuncturists. um, And I would see the chiropractors and I would see some Qigong healers. I started apprenticing with a Qigong master, I think at age 16 for 12 years. um, And and, um, what I found was that all treatments work for something at a first specific time. But there's so many causes for pain right so we'll just say headaches but this is across the board for any anything uh chinese medicine has an interesting concept that says um one disease many causes many causes one disease meaning you know if you have 50 causes for something no matter what those symptoms are they can all cause the same problem in different people or you can have migraine headaches but there might be 17 causes for migraine headache right so if it's the cause where there's something with skeletal uh, misalignment um, subluxations they call it uh, pinched nerves something like that tension the chiropractor helps or the massage therapist helps right if it's the channels are blocked and there's some kind of um thing with the energy in the body it's the acupuncturist or the qi the qigong teacher you know if it's something where the um, the blood vessels are really pounding, uh, the eyes are dilated, then you need to have the migraine medications because the other stuff can't take that out fast enough. But if you don't take the medicine at the start of the headache, it doesn't do anything. It's, it's useless, right? Uh, and then there's ones from stress and tension where meditation helps, being quiet helps, no light, no sound, no smell. Um, and I one all around Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Philippines, Japan, seeking treatments as both a researcher and a patient. So I, I videotaped them all, I took pictures, I interviewed all the healers, and I wrote down my what they did in my experiences. And they all help for different parts of time. So to make the very long story short is if you understand the main reasons why why there's imbalance in your body and you can return to the balance, then those pains and the migraines and the bloating and the whatever the ailment is, um, goes away. And then if you go out drinking, or you're up too late, and sleep deprivation, alcohol, are both migraine triggers, and you wake up and you have a headache, you know why you have it. It's just not there. So then the next day you rebalance and it's not there after another day. Right? So I at 32 when I figured that out, um, and and wrote out the book about it was that I would say, okay, I love Italian food, you know, but it, the whole th- the whole meal is a migraine trigger, you know, wheat is a migraine trigger. So that's all the pasta and the breading on your chicken parm or whatever it is. Tomatoes are a migraine trigger. Well, when you gonna, you need spaghetti sauce, if you know. Uh caffeine, migraine trigger, so there's your cappuccino. Dairy, migraine trigger, so there's your sorb your ice cream at the end of the night or whatever it is. But I would want to have Italian food, you know, so I would know that the next day probably I would have a headache of some sort. Um but then things it wasn't a one-for-one one equal because my my levels threshold of trigger was different for different things. So how many coffees can I have in a day or in a week before a migraine would trigger? So it's like, oh, I can have four in a week, no headache. And I stick to four or less, you know? And then how many spaghetti sauces can I have or, you know? And and how many nights can I stay up past 11 o'clock and still get up at six before the sleep deprivation causes the headache? And that's like two nights for me, you know? So I started, you know, making my lists of, my limits on things and it worked out
1: terrifically fascinating yeah and did uh the chinese medicine framework help you understand some sort of fundamental underlying cause that made you susceptible to the headaches and susceptible to these triggers was there something Mm -hmm.
0: there was was there's a, a philosophical or
1: conceptual
0: framework in chinese medicine that says where there's pain there's no free flow of energy and when there's free flow of energy there's no pain which means we're looking at stagnations excess and deficiencies right so those three things became the model for my when i was in treatment treating patients i have a doctor in chinese medicine and so it's like okay you're either stagnant deficient or in excess and all we need to do is if it's stagnant like say you have a bruise the blood is stagnant we have to move the blood through right you have uh, tennis elbow or you had a surgery you can't move your arm well That stagnation, we need to move the stagnation, right? Excess is your eyes are red, your face is red, you have a headache on the top of your head. That's due from liver, what they call liver chi rising. So it's probably from stress or alcohol or anger. So that excess we need to bring down. If you're deficient, say you're pale, your blood is deficient, your woman is menstruating, then there's herbs to uh, fortify that. And there's certain foods that will fortify that like a medicated diet on short term. So you want to get everything back to the middle. And if you understand the concept, um, and you have someone who can show it to you for your particular situation, that works really well. And that was really one of the things like, if we take it to the coffee, I can have four coffees a week. And I'm, I'm level. But if I drink five, I'm in excess, right? If I drink one, I'm probably in deficient, I'll get a headache from caffeine withdrawal. <laughs> you know. So it's like, you just You would just make a little map out of all the things you do in your life and find your levels, you know, uh, like water seeks its level, and that's your thresholds. And if you stay there, the pain is out or the headache is out.
1: Is there all? Have you also found there to be in that framework the ability to, I suppose, you know, you find your sweet spot. Yes. Is there? Is there an ability to? extend or uh, extend that sweet spot to make it more resilient uh, and to tolerate more variety and so on you know i'm thinking of the all the stories that one hears of the sickly uh boy who's who trains in tai chi or qigong and not only relieves the symptoms of sicknesses but also then goes on from having been sickly before it's a sort of archetypal trope it goes You're on having blast. on a, Goes on to become even more robust than even his otherwise healthy peers, and over time, the sick the sick boy becomes, you know, the the immortal, basically, right? The immortal, the ninth immortal, right? Yes,
0: yes, because when you then start adding in things like somatic training, meditation, um, supplements, dietary changes, right, all of those things start fortifying you in a very positive energetic and helpful way. So then the weaknesses that were either sending you into deficiency or excess are harder and harder become harder to send you into those deficiencies or excesses, right? So the first thing is find your level in the life and state that you're in, and then fortify to, to uplift. And, you know, the more you meditate, the less stress, tension, worry, anxiety, pulls into the body and those things just lock the muscles down. They cause the squigglies in the stomach. You know, they, they send people off into to smoke or drink or overeat because they don't know how to deal with that feeling. Uh, so all of those things, those triggers start to just get harder to trigger you as you fortify. Yeah.
1: Uh, is there a sense in that way of working of, um, of deliberate exposure to those triggers in uh, homeopathic form? In order to develop a tolerance, I know in some other traditional medical systems I'm aware of, that's a treatment that's sometimes used for allergies. First of all, get away from right. it. First of all, get distance, you know, get the inflammation down or whatever the case may be, get the body back into a sort of homeostasis or balance. And then actually, rather than con- continually fleeing from those stress factors, which can reduce the sweet spot, the surface area of the sweet spot, actually, it can reduce it, reduce it, reduce it. Mm-hmm. Counterintuitively, you know, become more right. sensitive. Um, is there a way of uh, expanding that? You're saying yes, there is to these various means. What about exposure to the to the um negative triggers in homeopathic form? Is that done at all? Um, uh, yes and no. So even in
0: Chinese medicine, there's a saying like if you get poisoned, you know, some kind of poison that you cure the poison with a stronger poison. You know, right. um, in in drinking culture out here in college, they call it hair of the dog, right? You have a hangover, drink more. It helps bring the little by little, it decreases your hangover. Uh, I don't know. Um, um when people have allergic to bee stings an allergy to bee stings, uh, they trade it with a EpiPen that has some of the factors of the bee sting, uh, whatever it is in there that people are allergic to, that creates the histamine response. They have that in part of the cure, right? And part of the cure to it, which is like a homeopathic thing. Um, the, the Where I'm on the fence with homeopathy the is that the concept I agree with. And so what you're saying, um, m- here's an example. Caffeine is a very, very strong migraine trigger, but the most popular, um, migraine medication for decades, furicet and furanol was caffeine, Tylenol, aspirin, and a barbiturate. So caffeine was part of the, yeah. the ingredient in the medicine right now where I, I have a struggle with homeopathy is that they're diluting that say caffeine to such a degree that there's no more trace element of the caffeine in the supplement the fluid the liquid whatever right so it's like a dropper full of caffeine in the entire ocean is the equivalent Um, so i don't know if the results of homeopathy are psychosomatic or they actually have a result and i say that having read dozens and dozens of medical studies that say it doesn't work because they dilute the actual thing to a degree that it's non-traceable, that it's not actually having an effect in the body, but millions of people receive an effect and a result from homeopathy. So Mm. I'm kind of, uh, the concept for me is yes, but I'm not sure about the actual efficacy outside of a psychosomatic realm for homeopathy.
1: Yeah, when I said homeopathic, I didn't really mean it in the sense of homeopathy more yes. more contrasting it with allopathic yes
0: that's, yes that's yes.
1: The con- that's the sort of in yes. principle of treatment rather than the the those different two different complementary or yes. opposing treatment principles rather than the system of homeopathy which i, mm-hmm. I agree is um it's its own it's its own thing <laughs> yeah and and even say with migraines and caffeine
0: if somebody has a headache and they drink just a little bit of black coffee often it'll bring the headache down right but that's homeopathic
1: in its in its sort of in its, more broad in its, use of the term,
0: right, yeah. right, you know, or they'll eat a few carrot sticks, mini carrot sticks, because maybe it's a sugar problem that's causing headache, low sugar, uh, you know, where your blood sugar drops.
1: So, what was the name of the book you said that you've written about this? Uh, Headaches relieved, and it's uh, so. And this does this also have all the documentation of of the treatments you did and yes. your whole journey as well? Mm-hmm. Oh wow, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. I wrote another one called
0: Arthritis Reversed, which is my best-selling book, uh, and another one on pain called um, Natural Solutions for Pain and Inflammation, Inflammation, um, which is more broad than just headaches or arthritis, osteoarthritis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Very good. Cool. (laughs) Well, I'd like to thank you, Steve, for sharing your, well, my morning, your evening, early evening with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and I'd like to have you on again in a in a while to talk more about kind of these uh retreats that you do. Um about more I would like to get into more depth into the meditation and the different meditation practices with you. And um but before we go is there your website and uh your 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 um podcast and links will all be in the show notes for people who are interested. Uh, interested. Um, and is there anything that you would like to share with us about what you're up to or doing or offering, um, before we close out today?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much, Mark, for inviting me. This has been such a great conversation with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd be delighted to come back and talk about meditation or whatever else. Wonderful. Um, as for how to, yeah, I mean, it's all at guruviking.com www.guruviking.com that's where you'll find the podcast of course you can also find the podcast on youtube search guru viking or spotify itunes mm-hmm. whatever um but on the website it's all there archived and categorized you can also find their information about uh movement kind method which we talked about including dvd downloads you can find meditation classes that um i run as well as different workshops and retreats that i teach by Myself, or as you pointed, uh, as you mentioned, I think off air, with my co-teacher Michaela Bohm, all that stuff is there. Nice. So, um, GuruViking.com is the hub for uh, all of those sorts of things. And you interestingly have
0: a uh, meditation club, which is not yeah. something I've heard that term. Uh, so, I, I would like people, rather than you telling us what it is, I would like them to go, the listeners to go to GuruViking.com and find out what is the meditation club and how they can get involved. I think that would be terrific. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve.